scripture reading today uh, is Luke 10, 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to, inter- to inherit eternal life, eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. You may be seated. well-known story but we still need to pray before we press our mind into it let's bow our heads join our hearts and ask God to bless us father it is so easy for us to be overwhelmed by when we take just a moment just a, a moment of our day to think on the greatness of your compassion and mercy to us It's so easy for us to be overwhelmed, Father, to the point that we don't have words to wield the emotion. And this is one of those stories, Father, that when we we think slowly and deeply and and, and ponder the, the meaning of this parable, we're just so moved, Father, by what it is that you have done for us in Christ. And so as we we think about these words, Father, what we ask in faith with all of our heart in the name of Jesus is that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For we choose this day, Father, to be disciples of your Son and to recognize you as our God in all that we do, transforming us, Father, and conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus, as his disciples. Thank you again for this opportunity, Father, to press our mind into your word. And we ask all of these things in the name of the beautiful Lord Jesus. Amen. 
want to begin with a, uh, a statement that will set the trajectory for our study this morning. And the statement is based on John chapter 1, verse 14. It's a verse that we're all familiar with. It's up here on the screen. The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Say these last five words with me. Full of grace and truth. Let's say it one more time. Full of grace and truth. Those verses in John's Gospel in that prologue section are a reminder to us of the character and the nature of Jesus as He came flesh and dwelled among us. He made His tent, His tabernacle, His housing among us. He was full of grace and truth. Truth and grace. If you have your Bibles open, underline those words. Circle them or write them there in your, your outline out there to the side. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He wasn't just truth, wasn't just honesty without love, and it wasn't just love without truth. He had both of these. The question is, since we are disciples of Jesus, we walk in His steps, we walk as He walked, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. The question is, how do we embody truth and grace? How do we do that? Now here's the statement. We connect people to the gospel through ambassadorial and neighborly service. Let me say that one more time. We connect people to the gospel through ambassadorial and neighborly service. There are two very simple but important words in the Bible, in the New Testament, that describe you and me as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth. Those two words are ambassador and neighbor. As an ambassador, we speak the message of our leader. We speak the message of God's kingdom wherever we are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are therefore God's Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The second word is neighbor. Matthew chapter 28, verse 38, love your neighbor as yourself. It's all over the Old Testament in the New Testament, in the teachings of Jesus. I want you, though, to circle that word neighbor or write it down on your outline. That's where we're going to park for a bit this morning. When you think of the word neighbor in a biblical context, you almost always think immediately of the Good Samaritan story in Luke chapter 10. Everyone knows that story, but one initial concern. In fact, I'm going to read you a quote from one of the, the commentators on the Gospel of Luke, primarily the parables of Luke in the culture of Jesus in the Middle East. A fellow by the name of Kenneth Bailey writes, there is a tendency to ignore the dialogue, which means that uh, that, that beginning uh, dialogue, the conversation between the lawyer and Jesus, incredibly important to understanding the parable. He says, when you th uh, there is a tendency to ignore the dialogue, if we do this parable only because uh, if we do this, the parable only becomes an ethical exhortation to reach out to those in need. Now it's that, but there's a lot more going on here. And because that dialogue, that text is a little bit combative, we're going to divide it into two rounds. Round one, round two. Round one is going to be verses 25 through 28. Round two is going to be verses 29 through 37. So here's round one. First word I want you to write down on your outline is this, test. It's a fact of life. It's a fact of life. If you interact with people on a regular basis, 
there will be a human being who will put you to the test either intentionally to make a point or to show some kind of disrespect or to put you down or unintentionally and innocently now i did this unintentionally a couple of years ago in our sunday morning bible class supper club that we hosted in our home we have uh, people sitting around the table we're enjoying a great meal it's great conversation I had the big idea of taking the conversation to the next level. You know, get all metaphysical. Ask one of my favorite people in the entire world, in front of God and everyone, what do you think the meaning of life is? Her eyes got this big. And she said, you know, I was really just hoping to enjoy the food and kind of laughed, and I kind of laughed too. I looked over at Ellen now, I, I'm not much of a scholar on, on much of anything, but I am the leading expert in this room in reading her expressions. With her eyes, she was saying, What are you thinking? And we've never been invited to Supper Club since. <laughs> not true. Not true. But sometimes the test is intentional. What is intended is disrespect. What the lawyer does in verse 25 is he stands up and he addresses Jesus as rabbi, calls him teacher, which is a sign of respect. But the lawyer is going to put Jesus to the test. What Luke is doing is revealing that this lawyer has a corrupt heart. I don't know. There might be a joke there. I don't know. But I'm not going to go there. The question, though, is why would he want to do that? Why would he want to put Jesus to the test? What is it that he expects Jesus to say? Does he expect Jesus to say that God doesn't really care about holiness? That's why Jesus is always with undesirable people. Remember the psychology of disgust? That we think that there are people that we consider to be contaminated with impurities or immorality or something that's just kind of nasty about them, that we can't be with them because that's going to somehow transfer to us. Maybe that's what he's thinking, the psychology of disgust. Jesus must not be very good with the moral law. That needs to be exposed. So they enter into a series of questions. The lawyer asks the first one, verse 25, and this is questions. Verse 25, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, when you think about it, it's sort of a silly, pointless question because you don't really have to do anything to inherit something except outlive everybody. But he probably expects Jesus to answer with a, a list of, the, of the, the finer points of the law that can be debated between the two of them. But Jesus, wisest man who ever lived, Jesus knows already that the lawyer is going to affirm the law, so Jesus asks a question to draw out what is in the lawyer's heart. He asks in verse 26, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? Now, you may not know this. In the Old Testament, 613 laws or commandments. The word in Hebrew is mitzvayot. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament. Heard an interesting piece of history. Uh, um, I'm having some trouble finding the reference. I'm going to share it with you anyway. 
as you know, there were two schools of rabbinical thinking that were very prominent during the time of Jesus. These were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, that lived before the time of Jesus, but had a very heavy, heavy, heavy-handed influence on the religious spiritual thinking of Judaism during the time of Jesus. Shammai, who was very, very, very conservative, said that when you take all of the 613 laws of the Old Testament, commandments of the Old Testament, and shrink it down, it's this, love God and be holy. Hillel, on the other hand, who was a little bit more liberal, said it boils down to this, love God and love your neighbor. So this lawyer answers, and he answers very, very wisely. He says in verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and your strength and with all of your mind. Basically, love God with everything that you are. God consumes everything that you have. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, well done. That's absolutely correct. Jesus is going to teach that in other places himself. He says, do this, lawyer, and live. But the lawyer just can't leave it alone. So he wants to justify himself, which then leads to a rebuttal. Verse 29. Who is my what? Neighbor. Who is my neighbor? And it's here that Jesus discerns something in the lawyer's heart that needs to be confronted. So this brings us to round two, which begins with a parable. Jesus does not debate him. He doesn't give him any more facts. He says, hey, you know, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. you got time for a story. And he, he tells this parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, parables uh, are really important in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus at times is very, very practical. He gives us things to do. Uh, uh, pray for those that persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Uh, you know, don't let somebody see that you're fasting when you're fasting. You know, very, very practical and to the point. Very frank, very to the point. There are other times when the teaching is so, so important because it, it, it involves a worldview or the changing of a person's character or the way that you might see other people that he stops and he tells a parable. And a parable is a metaphorical story. And like all metaphors, when somebody says, you know, I, I love you, it, it's point blank and, and you get it. It's the fact, great, I'm loved. But if you say, I love you forever like the mountains are for are forever you have to stop and think about that the more you think about it the more you ponder it the more it sort of gets into your heart and the meaning of that fact love for you becomes heavier and heavier and greater and greater that's why jesus tells a parable he wants this lawyer to step back for just a minute and to think and to ponder and to meditate and he says you know there's this story it's a man Probably a Jew going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Very dangerous road during this time. It was 17 miles steep descent from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Along the way, he is mugged. He's half beaten to death. During this period of time, the rabbis identified stages of death. It was uh, sort of like if you saw the movie Princess Bride, Miracle Max, which is the Billy Crystal uh, uh, character, says mostly dead is slightly alive. Half dead is near death in the rabbinic categories. And this guy is laying there. His life is ebbing out of him. And here comes a priest. A priest to the lawyer, the hero of Judaism. A priest. He's coming. He goes by. 
He's probably on a horse because the priests were part of the Sadducean class, which were part of the aristocracy, part of the upper class of Judaism during this period of time. He's probably riding as part of the upper class, but he crosses to the other side and avoids this man that's half beaten and near death, half dead. Now, we're not really given a whole lot of reasons why, but because he is a priest and he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, it might be that he has some issues with, with touching a person that he's not sure if he's alive or he's dead. And if he touches a dead man, then he is going to be polluted and he is in a position where he cannot get the purity laws wrong. And he, he goes to the other side. Doesn't want to be accused of not being able to uphold the laws of purity. But the ironic thing is that all of a sudden his religion gets in the way of saving someone. Ironic. So he passes by on the other side. He does not want to touch this person. But then comes a Levite. Now, uh, the Levites actually worked for the priesthood, and so they were probably, if you read uh, the, the commentators and, and the scholars, they, they probably left Jerusalem at the same time. The guy on the horse, the priest, is going to go down the road a little bit faster. His employee, the Levite, the guy that works for the temple needs and the priest needs, he's going to be walking. He's not upper class, probably doesn't have an animal. He's walking, but he does the same thing. He gets closer, but he doesn't get involved. And there might be a very practical reason for that. He's on foot. This guy is still alive. You can tell that the wounds probably are very fresh. The guy's not dead yet, but he's been mugged. Maybe the robbers are nearby. Maybe I don't need to get involved. I need to move on. Or another reason could be, if I help this guy, what is my boss who crossed over going to say? But either way, the priest and the Levite do not get involved. And then comes, surprisingly, a Samaritan. Now, uh, one of the things that, uh, that is so surprising here that we don't pick up on is you just, you don't make, when you're trying to tell a, a morality tale, you just don't make somebody's enemy the hero. It would be like saying that, uh, you know, the, the Aggies really needed a quarterback so they went to UT to get one who came and played quarterback for the Aggies and they won the SEC. We don't do that, right? Surprisingly comes the Samaritan. And he sees this mostly dead but slightly live man and he experiences in the original language a very, very colorful word, Splunk Nizomai. Splunk Nizomai. It's a very visceral word. You have to say it down in, in your guts. It's it's a word that, that translated literally means compassion. But when you say it, you get a sense of what this word is all about. It's blanknon. It's about something that's in here that's got to come out. Decades ago, wrestling in high school, making weight, a very big deal. We had two dual meets, Wednesday nights, Saturday afternoons. We had weigh-ins on Wednesday morning and Saturday mornings. Uh, we had a Wednesday dual meet one week. Uh, made weight that morning, had to starve, 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 starve with everybody else on the team. Starving, made weight. Usually the practice was uh, you get in about 6.30, 7 o'clock at school, you make weigh-ins, and then you gorge yourself for the next 12 hours. On that particular day, a one-pound bag of M&M sounded delicious. 
consumed the entire bag along with some other stuff. Now we get to the wrestling uh, mat. We're at Crossland High School that night, wrestling guy by the name of Tom Marks, a good guy, a, a, a good wrestler. But I was so hopped up on M&Ms, it was like I was flying on jet fuel. And, I mean, we're flipping and flopping all over the mat, and I've got this guy on his back, and I just can't pin him, but I'm, I'm jumping all over him, you know, trying to get him down, and I cannot pin this guy. I'm up like 11 to nothing at the end of the first period. Second period, I look over the coach, he says, hey, finish this off. So I say, okay. And as I got down on the mat, this wave of nausea came over me that made me think I need to get off of this mat as quickly as possible, or I will never have a date as a high school senior ever again. So I, I'm just going to tell you what I did. I choked this guy into pinning himself in a very deceptive way. It was legal back in the day, but that's what happened. He pinned himself because he couldn't breathe, and I made sure he couldn't breathe. And then as soon as the ref held my hand up, I ran, shook his coach's hand, shook my coach's hand, went in, ran into the locker room and came out one pound of M&M's lighter. What went in was not going to stay down. It was going to come back out. That's what this word means. Splunk needs on my means. You have this sense of compassion that you just, you just can't hold it in. You can't sit on it. You can't stop it. It's, it's going to come out some way. You've got to do something or you're going to explode. That's what this Samaritan is feeling when he sees this guy on the side of the road. The Samaritan has compassion that cannot be contained. And he takes care of the man. He, he, he binds up the wounds. He puts him on a, this animal to ride to, to the inn. He stays overnight in the room taking care of the guy and making sure that he, that he doesn't die. He leaves the resources to the, with the guy that owns the inn and, 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 the inn and says, you know, I stay, stay with him. Here's money for supplies. Basically, he's showing this sacrificial love by, by taking care as a Samaritan of this Jewish man. And then he says, I'm going to come back and check on him. The parable to me is genius at so many levels. Why are the priest and the Levite in the story? They're not really needed to make the point, right? Except if the point is that religious people, one of the points is that religious people don't always get the neighbor question right. Why a Samaritan taking care of a Jew rather than the Jew taking care of the Samaritan, the other way around? Why the Samaritan? Why is it the guy that is the dreaded enemy, the hero? Samaritans were not very well liked by the Jews. In fact, there was a Jewish prayer during the time of Jesus. It's recorded in Ben Sirach that goes, There are two nations my soul detests. Can you imagine praying this to God? There are two nations my soul detests. The third is not a nation. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Edomites, the Philistines, and the stupid people living in Shechem, which are the Samaritans. What Jesus is, is doing in making the Samaritan the hero of the story is pulling out the bigotry in the man's heart to illustrate what's behind the question, who is my neighbor? And what it is that Jesus is pulling out is this understanding, this objective. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. 
Why is it the wrong question? Because if you ask that, then your love is always going to be limited. There's always going to be some parameters. Your, your love is always going to be fenced around something. We're only going to love the people that we like or the people that are not disgusting to us. We will only love the peop people that, that uh, do not make it inconvenient for us or dangerous or sacrificial to love. We'll only love the people who can return the investment to us. Jesus said early, early, early in His ministry, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Can we get that up on the screen? For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus is telling his people to have a love that's eye-catching. He's, he's, he's inspiring his people in this story to think deeply about what it means to have an inexplicable love. A love that, when you think about it in terms of conventional human wisdom, it doesn't make a lot, of, a lot of sense. Because most humans expect to find rejection and discrimination. They expect to find narrow-mindedness and biases. And you know what people are always surprised at? Neighborliness. Neighborliness. And that experience begins to grow and grow and to be experienced and experienced as we begin to ask the right question. Listen carefully again to how Jesus moves this lawyer to rethink the validity of his question, who is my neighbor? Jesus, in verse 36, says, asks, which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, i got to tell you, I like this lawyer because he is thinking. He has listened carefully to the story that Jesus is telling, and he's being pulled in to think more deeply about what is at stake. Jesus asked the question, who proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands and was lying there half dead? The right answer is not the Samaritan. The right answer is not, not the Jews. The right answer is the one who showed what? Mercy and compassion and spot needs oh my. And that really makes sense when you really begin to put it in the context of who it is that's speaking to this lawyer. It's this Jesus that while we were alienated from God, that Jesus comes in mercy and in compassion, traveled our road, finding us half dead. It's this Jesus who becomes our neighbor. What did John chapter 1, verse 14 say? He became flesh and did what? Dwelled among us. He made his house next to our house. He tabernacled. He tented among us. He came 
to be our neighbor and to be a neighbor to us when he found us on the road half dead. And although he owed us nothing, although he owed us absolutely not a single denarii, our Savior did not pass on the other side. He did not pass on the other side. But he stops and becomes a neighbor in compassion and mercy to us, finding us in our half-dead existence and makes the greatest sacrifice of love to make sure that we get the life back. And Jesus says, it's really not about who is my neighbor, but who is it that I can be a neighbor to? Who is it that I can show mercy to? And that's what Jesus is saying this morning. Maybe, maybe you, you, you've just never have gotten to that place where you really feel like, you, you know, my life's not all that bad. I make some mistakes. I mess up every once in a while. There's some collisions into brick walls from time to time, but I'm still standing. But then all of a sudden something happens and you, and you just see that that's not true. What's really true is that sometimes you feel pretty dead on the inside and there are times when you feel like you're just hanging on and sometimes you just feel like you don't have energy and sometimes it's just really a life without peace or a life without joy. It's like we're half dead. And what Jesus does in coming from heaven to us is not to pass us by, but to come and to be among us, to dwell among us, to make his house among us in order, in order to be the kind of neighbor that blesses us, the kind of Savior that changes us, the kind of, of shepherd that leads us, the kind, the kind of, of, of king that never enslaves us, but the kind of king who dies for his people rather than asking his people to die for him. The only king that does that. And that's the promise of the Christ in his compassion and mercy to give you your life back. And that happens when you decide that, you know, I, that direction that I've been going is not the direction I need to go. That leads to death. What I need to do is I need to turn it 180 degrees and go towards God. And I need to, to understand more and more about, about that God and about that gospel. And there's that point where you say, this is so good and, and, and so wonderful that it has to be true. And there's a point where you say, you know, I'm, I'm trusting it. I'm going to trust it. I'm going to trust God's promise that through faith He'll save me because of Christ's death. And the way that you show that is by being baptized. You're, you're being baptized. You're, you're participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You're, you're trusting the promises of God to be true. It's faith. It's trust. And as you're baptized, it's not just washing sins away, but you're being brought up into a new life where it's not just your sins being forgiven, but God is going to change you. And God is not only going to change you, but He's going to call you into partnership with His human project. And he puts his spirit inside of you to help that process along. And from that point on, you're a part of a family that is forever and ever and ever. And if that sounds like the, the kind of thing that you, knew, you need to do today, 
then Ben is going to lead us in a song. And as we're singing, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to these guys as we stand and praise God together. Let's stand and sing. The splendor of a king.